Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Voss Vasolas, Technical Director at Digitas UK, where Voss leads the technology team responsible for developing and operating the Formula One global digital platform. How are you doing today, Voss? I'm very well. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me in your show. Yeah, definitely. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. I know a lot of listeners, including myself, um, you know, I'm a actually a pretty big Formula One fan as of um, Netflix creating a whole series around it. Um, so I'm excited to hear about everything in your background, as well as diving into some Formula One stuff. So, Okay, brilliant. So I'll start with a little bit of a, of a background for myself. So uh, F1 is what I'm working on now, but I have a long career in the digital media space. So working for probably two or three of the largest ones in the space, publicists, into Republic, etc. And I had throughout my career of the last 10, 15 years, had the pleasure of working with a number of brands, uh, luxury brands like Aston Martin, football brands like Manchester City, and another football slash uh, show brand like, like F1. So my background is in the digital media space all the way around websites, communications, digital products, e-commerce. So I um, started early in the days of LAMP stacks and all that and moved all the way now to pretty much everything as a service and, and serverless. And it's been a very exciting journey so far. Yeah, I, I mean, it's crazy the, the number of brands that you've worked for in these major companies. And while you've, while you've moved around to these different companies and seen the, the culture, I'm sure it took you some time to get used to it how have how have you uh have you built up a pattern around all these companies of things that they do similar and uh, things they do different uh, absolutely and that applies both for agencies but also for end clients and it's also not just vertical so i work also with clients for example in the finance space as clients which are probably the hardest to work with when it comes to issues like security governance flexibility adoption of the cloud and all those all those things but uh, I would say the number one pattern I see, it always comes down to peopleware. Software is not so much the problem. It always comes down to people, working practices, uh, ways of working, and, and so on. And these do not fundamentally change whether you're doing things on-premise, data centers, on the cloud, serverless, or, or whatever comes next. And so, and so when you say people, not software... Um... When, when you're talking about like uh, communicating with people and creating these new initiatives, um, how have you addressed that when you've moved around to these different companies? Well, first of all, I think like everything, acknowledging that it's an issue and it's a challenge is, is the first step. Uh, secondly, it comes as a combination of education and leadership. So show people essentially how you can do things better, uh, lead the way and start with quick wins and uh, and move them kind of up the chain. So uh, I'll, I'll use the um, serverless as an example. A few years back, you know, it didn't exist or it was considering very, very novel, very exotic. You definitely you wouldn't see this in digital sp- uh, space. You wouldn't see it in banks and so on. But now it's a, it's becoming more and more uh, pervasive. I came across an interesting article the other day about companies that they're doing really well in their adoption of serverless and one of them is uh, you might be surprised to hear coca-cola so they are doing it so well that actually they changed some of the governance process to 
for, for certain types of projects to almost go by default on serverless. So back in the day, I would need, for example, to give a justification why I should not be doing web services and moving to serverless. Now it's the other way around. They go serverless by default, and I need to give a justification why this cannot be the case. And I think that shows a fundamental um, shift. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So Coca-Cola is doing serverless. They have a, the way that you said it, that they do serverless by default. Um, for moving forward in 2020, would that be how you would recommend to people that you interact with? Start with serverless, and then if your use case adapts, then do something different? Uh, absolutely. What I would um, suggest, what I would recommend to people, is always know the limitations. So a lot of the time, people are focusing on the capabilities, what you can do with XYZ technology, and they're not focusing what the limitations are. So that might seem a little bit odd. Typically, we are you know, solution-focused rather than problem-focused. And the reason why I think it's important to focus on some limitations first is because in some cases, these are hard limits. So for example, a, let's say if you're on AWS, there are certain limits around serverless, scaling, number of functions, etc. Some of them could be bypassed. You can, they're a bit soft, so you can ask for them to be increased, but some of them are hard limits. So based on your requirements, so for example, I mean, F1 is an interesting one. So during a, a live race, uh, we'll have phenomenal traffic. And we also have phenomenal traffic that spikes in, in, a, in a certain way, which a lot of architects would not be able to cope with. So things like uh, live data, data straight from the tracks that it's consumed, it's processed and fed back to you either on the website or on the mobile apps. Uh, it's using a combination of technologies which in the past that would not be possible with other ways. Some preliminary uh, investigations we've done probably with serverless we are still not there and we're not the only ones there are other companies sports companies that they are looking in this and they're saying well this we still need to do our own customizations or build around things but the threshold is decreasing so we're getting closer and closer to the time where it would be possible even for those use cases so th that is uh, in summary, my recommendation to people, look at the things that will break your architecture first, that will not uh, fulfill your use case, starting with the hardest one. And if you can nail this, the rest the rest is easy. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a, that's a really good way to just kind of put it uh, succinctly. So, and, and then to go back to the F1 scenario, how heavily are you using serverless for all this real-time data? Well, uh, it is a ecosystem it's a beast of an ecosystem and partly obviously which i i and the team have inherited there are multiple partners different vendors and so on so where we use serverless is more around um gluing uh things between systems so uh a lot of the things are either um software as a service so you have things like headless cms's you have things like video platforms and so on and you want to do things like caching validation, image ingestion, uh, transferring of data, uh, storing analytics for processing later, big data, and so on. So this is where we leverage um, serverless or parts of serverless. Also, we are not um, in the luxury position of operating only within one cloud against this whole ecosystem. We pretty much have 
uh, systems across every cloud that you can think of. So you can imagine the wow, integration okay. between those types of systems is is quite a challenge. Yeah, so that leads into the next question, which is, yeah, the challenges between trying to stitch together these multiple cloud platforms and how are y'all making deployments? And and yeah, I guess like, could you give more context on the challenges you're facing? Uh, yes, um, I'll, I'll actually take a step back and talk about a little bit of the peripheral projects we've been doing lately that we are trying to utilize serverless more because we feel it's more ideal, the scale is not what we want, what we need, etc. So over there, the challenge that we've come across deployments and development is, again, bringing down to people, is around the DevOps and infrastructure. What is code? What is infrastructure? How you deploy one versus the other? So uh, to bring it to a concrete example, imagine a small system where you have some pieces of uh, of architecture you need to deploy. So you're having DynamoDB tables, you have queues, you have SNS, you have functions, uh, and, and a few other bits and bobs. Which of those things you consider infrastructure in the traditional sense, and which of them is code? Where this is relevant comes down to organizations, especially larger organizations that might still have a bit of delineation between kind of DevOps, which deal more with infrastructure, and the dev, you know, the traditional devs, which they move from the local environment to the dev environment and so on. Now, serverless with SAM and, and other approaches is a little bit blurry. So where we, at least our approach to that is try to keep them uh, slightly distinct. I wouldn't call them separate, but distinct, uh, using uh, Terraform for handling the infrastructure piece of the solution. So your DynamoDB, your um, your queues, the things that wouldn't change very often, they will be part of your core solution design, but things that would change, could change even on a daily basis, especially during development, things like obviously your, your lambdas and your functions, these are handled more through through SAM and separating that deployment. So having full deployments, partial deployments, and essentially hot fixes, and trying to get to a, a balance of a cadence and governance um, using these techniques. Wow! And so to develop that kind of uh, three prong system for deployments, uh, what did y'all did y'all? Was this over multiple months? How, how long did it take to kind of build out this structure? Uh, no, the, we, we had the the luxury of building on a very, very uh, strong team foundation and, and heritage because Digital UK has been doing hosting even starting from on-premise, moved to the cloud and have 10, 15 years of experience. So we it was very simple for us. It was just an incremental step to apply those principles to to the new world, really. But I do suspect if we're starting from scratch, it would be a few months worth of effort just to get it right. And and something to go back to kind of your background and how you got into tech. Um, I guess the first question would be, I saw that uh, you started, I want to say software development around like the, uh, the late 90s. Um, what, what brought you into tech? What got you interested about it? Well, uh, computer games. So uh, back in the days of getting the first computer at home, uh, 286, playing games, uh, learning you know, how to bypass stuff. I wouldn't call it hacking, but I guess you could say it in, in, in that way, in that sense. And, and then 
that's what really got me into tech computing, my education, and since the very early days, kind of technical architect was my kind of my, my dream job, so to speak. So from then onwards, kind of this is the path I I followed. Computer games, got into programming, uh, got your first job, and then technical architect you said was like the thing that you wanted to move into. And then once you hit it, um, how did how did that transition towards like being a technical director? Well, one of the realizations I had early, uh, you know, in, in the very few years, I was thinking, well, t- technology is all about technology. But then I came to to realize again that it's people is a fundamental part of it, and I think this is where the difference is between. Uh, the engineering part, which obviously still interests me greatly, and kind of the management slash people part of team building. So I think that's really the biggest transition between uh, an architect or a subject matter expert and someone who is a little bit more rounded, sometimes be able to see the, the bigger picture, and the bigger picture can involve a lot of people as opposed to just, you know, how many transactions per second, how many servers we need, and, and so on. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. So now I'm starting to see like a pattern form around the communication with people, how that's led into the way that you communicate, which is very, very good, by the way. Um, and then moving into uh, kind of combining these two things together. And so now your, your job is you know, both engineering and people, organizing them together. Um, and so... I noticed that uh, you've been doing this with the the F1 uh, global digital platform where you've been leading the team there. How does that day-to-day look like uh, for you? Well, um, uh, most of the engineering team, we're split between um, UK, where we'll have a lot of people like the business analysts, the product team, and so on. But the core engineering team, uh, technical architects, the hands-on developers, and so on, are actually based in India. So as you can imagine, a big part of my day and pretty much the whole team's day is around uh, distributed working. So calls, Skype, um, Confluence, and, and so on. And we were joking this, this day that as of last week, we had three offices to work. And now we're actually working around 60 offices because given the current situation, pretty much everybody's working from home. But um, so far... Thanks to some good collaboration tools like Teams, uh, we manage fine. Wow. So y'all are mostly remote before you know all the craziness that we have currently going on. Y'all are better prepared for having to work from home? Uh, absolutely. We're, we're very um, well prepared for working remote. Obviously, we had um, face-to-face with clients, with people in the office, uh, things outside of, my, of this account, so working on new businesses and, and so on. But uh, I think everybody um, adopted very, very well. Nice. And, and what would be some of the, the tips that you've learned? Because I'm sure as you've worked through your career, you haven't been at a company that entirely has been remote like that and, and able to, to work in that fashion. Have you seen, do you, would you have any advice for companies that are just now having to learn how to work from home all of a sudden? Uh, yes, I, I guess it, it's different if you plan for it versus when you are uh, find yourself in the need to do it instantly. So, and the reason why my first advice might not work straight away is culture. It's something you need to invest. It doesn't happen uh, overnight. And really treat people. There, there isn't two teams. There isn't the office in Mumbai, the office in China, the office in the UK. It's like one team, and people just happen to um, 
to be located elsewhere. We have people in the team, for example, that happened to be in India last week on personal uh, business or attend a wedding, and they did a pit stop to to see the team. So that's that's quite fundamental. I would say for for businesses and for people, try to meet people face to face. Obviously, current situation notwithstanding, but under normal circumstances, make that investment. Uh, meet people face to face go out for a meal have a beer and from that point onwards you have a completely different baseline to uh to work for your uh, remote interactions if you cannot do this where you're now utilize a video call it makes a huge difference just hearing a voice versus seeing someone putting a, a face to the name and being able to see all these um you know communication hints that they are non-verbal, how people move, how they move their hands when they talk, the expression of the face, all those little things that you would see if you were in a meeting room and you don't, if you're remote, well, a video is a very good um, substitute. To dial back to the culture part, I think that's a really big point that, you know, having a culture, like you said, is a really nice way to say that, um, treating people the same way, you know, if you have an office and there's people showing up in person, but then you have people remote, uh, treating it as like one single uh, unit and not differentiating, which can be probably pretty easy to fall into, right? Where the people that are in the office, there may be side conversations. So how do you make sure that the people that are remote feel like they're also part of that that core team? Uh, it's, it's a good question. Obviously, using the um, tools for communication, trying to cut down on emails, using more chat-based tools, having rooms. I always encourage people and try to uh, to lead in the way that personal chats are, are fine and you can do one-to-one chat when you're solving a problem and so on. But it's much better to do chat rooms where other people can either participate or, or can be informed of what's happening. Because you can imagine if you have a team of 40 people and everyone's having chats on, on one-to-one, that's what great for building an interpersonal relationship, but doesn't help actively to build that community and, and, and culture. So uh, in the past, we, we have successfully used the kind of Spotify uh, model of guilds as, as another way of trying to, um, you know, build culture, not just the engineering side of things, but also have, you know, the light touch elements like, um, you know, random fact of the day, uh, chit chat, or all those sorts of things that normally you would do around the water cooler. If you haven't wrote anything on that, I'm sure people would be really interested to hear, um, I especially would, of how you all kind of integrated that in. Is that Digitas or has that been working for a client? Um, uh, it's it's a combination. We're doing this at Digitas. I've been doing this in previous roles where uh, we were six, seven teams across uh, three time zones. We had actually both the client and another vendor were based in the US. We're based in London. And we've had other people down in Costa Rica. So, so a whole a whole mix. Yeah, well, that's pretty good insight. I think that, you know, especially right now, people that are listening are probably working from home. Um, hopefully, hopefully there's not any offices that are still operating at the moment. But when it comes to, you know, kind of dialing the question back to, to service a little bit, I, I've saw that you've written some articles. Um, what areas are you like interested in and focused on with serverless? Are there any new releases that you're really following? What are your thoughts? 
Uh, yes, there's there's a, there's a few things. I mean, in my, in my current role, obviously, I have a specific focus, but in my broader role, I'm always open to what is coming out, what is still at the research phase versus what is something that we can take, trial, um, you know, adopt, and, and so on. So I'm a big fan of uh, technology radar uh, and all those, all those approaches. So for me, one trend that I see is in some companies and industries is obviously uh, Kubernetes. It's like the uh, technology of the day. And combining with serverless, people say, oh, I get my, my clusters, I put my own framework, whether it's OpenFast or, or a few others that are out there, and having my own solution. Uh, I'm a little bit skeptical around that. And the reason why I'm a bit skeptical is because I think a lot of people haven't realized that the function as a service or serverless is very tightly coupled, so to speak, with the underlying data stores, the triggers that you're going to use, the uh, whether you're on Amazon or Azure and so on. So in that sense, one area that I'm quite interested to see how it progresses is the event bus from AWS and the capabilities that provides you to start integrating, again, different systems and your own systems with, with serverless. So that would be one area to, to watch out. And the second thing is, it's not specifically to serverless, but I think it has a very nice synergy, is uh, GraphQL and how we can move certain things from the more traditional REST services to uh, GraphQL. And so uh, the first point for Kubernetes, um, how have you seen, so when you you think about serverless and essentially like this less overhead, uh, less to worry about, more focus on just writing the code, and then you think about like Kubernetes. Um, do you see any? Uh, do you see the the operational trade off? Um, and have you ever seen where it makes sense to have that operational trade off? Yes, absolutely. I, I would say um, the areas where I see more that trade off is around um, verticals or industries that require more um, governance. So typically finance, whether you have some very specific requirements, it gives you, it's it's. It's always about the same, right? It's about control versus flexibility. You want control, then Kubernetes run your own thing on top is fine, but then you you lose on the efficiencies and, and so on. I wouldn't recommend it. So to give you an example, in the media space, there are projects like campaigns which might have a, a crazy uh, spikes. They might be last only for a few months and you might need to be able to put them up and running within weeks. So just the governance and the paperwork and the process that you will have to do in a bigger organizations to do this, you know, spin up your own VMs or set up Kubernetes clusters, put serverless on top, et cetera, et cetera, you, you would run out of the time for the campaign. Versus in the past, we've used um, serverless to literally uh, to launch things within weeks. And I remember, I won't name the, the client, but it was affiliated to a very big software company. So they had to comply with the standards. And one of the questions we had very early in the process, and we had days to put this up live, is what security testing we're going to do to the system, penetration testing, where are, where are the VMs? And I was trying to explain to them, well, they're not really VMs. You're not going to penetration testing you know, functions with that they don't, you know, there are no VMs that run behind them. And that's again, shows how we need to think in, in a different way and how the old models don't really apply in this new way of thinking. 
Yeah, that's a really good point about uh, the idea of like proposing serverless and then hearing some of the, the, the pushback that you might get. Um, when you've, when you've uh, introduced this concept to different clients and different people, uh, have, have, you, have you gotten better at communicating how serverless can work into their system or why it might be an alternative they should think about? Uh, yes, I've been, I, th- I think I hinted uh, in my previous example about timelines and how quick it is and how it scale is definitely some of the benefits. The other area that I see clients being a little bit skeptical is costs. So in a traditional model, typically clients want to say, well, I'm paying for one server, X amount of bandwidth, I'm paying a fixed amount and I'm guaranteed that I'm, I'm getting that. And that's especially around procurement, maybe sometimes not even the end client, but procurement. So uh, we had examples recently where we're looking at cost models for solutions based on serverless. And I remember I had to triple check the numbers because we had partial costs, which they were in the region of how much you pay for a monthly subscription for your mobile phone. And when we're having this kind of conversations, then the client says, okay, I, I understand why you, you recommend this definitely an area I want to explore more. So with the cost aspect of it, and y'all reviewed models for serverless, when you think about evaluating the cost of serverless, are you looking at the raw cost? Are you looking at like uh, being able to finish the timelines faster? Do you, are, do you have a model for taking consideration like how many physical people need to be uh, utilized to make a solution happen? Uh, I, I like how, how you uh, raised the question. Uh, in order to compare like for like, we are focusing primarily on the cost of the running cost and the recurring cost, not so much the savings on engineering. Because the truth is, if you if you develop something for the first time, and let's be honest, most of the pieces of software are, are unique, unless you're in a software factory, it's very hard up front to say, well, it would cost you know 10 days doing it in a traditional way and only five days on, on serverless. But where you can show some... Um, improvements or efficiencies is when we give partial costs for DevOps effort. So you're saying, well, the development cost is roughly the same, and I'm saying roughly in, in a loose term, but for example, you, you can cut down your DevOps costs, the upfront cost and ongoing by you know, 30, 40%, wh- whatever the number is, plus you have a, a raw savings on the operating costs. So your hosting cost, instead of being 10, now it's three. And so, uh, so yeah, so like with that and the cost saving aspect and uh, trying to predict this stuff, you're looking at the raw cost up front. Have you seen any uh, areas of serverless where there are hidden costs that y'all, been, that y'all ran into that you've then had to rethink? Uh, not so much, not yet, at least. Uh, maybe, maybe we have been lucky or been really good at our, our modeling. Uh, I guess one of the um, thing it's not so much the cost as such, but how do you prevent things? So if you're having a, a, a traditional DOS attack, which before it would take you out of uh, you know out of operation, now it could literally kill your bank account. So we haven't come across this because we're always thinking about how can we preempt this, and we have applying some secure technologies to allow us to either protect ourselves from that or having the right monitoring in place so we'll be able to adjust and you know if needed turn a financial attack so to speak into a out of operation attack you know if the client decides to do that 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a very interesting one. Um, definitely something I saw. Uh, I, I want to say that I read an article. It wasn't about AWS, but it was about uh, Firebase, and they they made like a website for I think it was donating like crowdfunding, and they got hit with all these requests, and they had like a thirty thousand, fifty thousand dollar bill, and it was like just one person <laughs> running a startup, and it was because the database scaled so seamlessly because um, it was a serverless database. Um, so that's definitely a really important note. And then, and then another thing that, that kind of popped up while you're talking about the challenges and we've been talking about cost, when it comes to introducing the concept of serverless to teams, have you had uh, to transition a lot of people to uh, working with AWS and working with serverless? And how did you go about that process? Uh, not, not that much. And I think we should, it's becoming easier and easier because uh, developers that have, let's say, less than five years of experience it's more likely that they have started working or they have spent more time working on serverless and, and containers and microservices rather than the traditional uh, three-tier architecture. So 20 years ago the, on the curriculum for computer science, that is what it was. There were no containers, there were no, not even VMs, so to speak. It was more like a traditional. So the ironically, the fresher people are out of university or into the um, employment arena, the more I have found that they're more self-educated, they are more kind of um, self-driven and keen to pick up new things. Basically, they have less things to unlearn and, and get used uh, get used to the new way. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I, I came through a code school and I've been around a lot of code school graduates over the past few years and definitely seen that where there's like almost this point where the barrier of entry has gone down quite a bit, right? Absolutely. And I have a very specific example to give that from. So uh, quite recently, um, um, I was working with a developer and they were applying relational database thinking on a DynamoDB uh, resource, which meant we're hitting some limits because we're trying to, to do certain things within nested transactions. But that was the, kind of the old school with the capabilities of DynamoDB being, being schemaless. We could just do things much, much better in a slightly different way without hitting any of the limits. And that was a very quick uh, fix to do once we, we reoriented the thinking. So take a step back. If you're thinking about serverless and you're coming from a traditional background, approach it with a fresh set of eyes. Try not to apply a lot of preconceptions to what you think it will do uh, and then learn from the way that it was, you know, learn learn to build it the way that it was designed to be built. Exactly. Don't think in the old ways and translate. It's a little bit like speaking a foreign language. If you, you know, think in your own language and translate, you you'll never really be able to do it right. You need to learn to think and express yourself in the foreign language itself. Perfect. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great analogy. Um and so and then and then to go to our final question here, if if a company's starting out uh, and they're thinking about using serverless, uh, do you have any advice for them? I will sound a little bit like Nike, just do it. But I, I, I do mean that. I Well, it it kind of depends, obviously, what, what product you're building. So th there might be cases. So, for example, if you're building some sort of digital project that requires, uh, you know, access to, you know, to the computer camera or some sort of AI or, or that kind of thing, then yes, serverless might not be for you. However, even if that's your use case, I would still question, do you have any supporting systems around that, whether this is the you know, ordering system, inventory, email notifications, whatever that might be, 
that could still benefit from serverless. So you might still be able to cover a, a factor of your um, of your needs, 50%, 60% serverless, and then it's still worthwhile doing so. Perfect. Well, yeah, I mean, I, thanks so much for being on the, the podcast, uh, Voss. I think this has been uh, very insightful. Could probably carry on this conversation for a couple hours. You're very welcome, um, Ryan. I, I feel <laughs> the same. Uh, do you have anything you want to promote or shout out? Um, not really. I would just like to say one thing, because we're talking about uh, Formula One, and we haven't really talked about mm. Formula Two and Formula Three. So, and just to wrap up on, on that note, very pleased to um, to share with you that we actually launched a new sites for the new season for Formula 2 and Formula 3. And for the, kind of the first time as an experiment, they are based on serverless. So we use uh, Next.js, uh, straight so server-side rendering hooked directly on AWS uh, CloudFront uh, using Lambdas. So basically, we run the whole system without actually having a single server in place. Wow. Yeah. No, this is... <laughs> so um, So with Next.js and server-side rendering from a Lambda function, uh, how long did it take you all to set this up? Let's put it like this. We started January for wow. the whole development of the new website. Obviously, we're quite lucky to reuse some of the backend technology stack and APIs, but whatever you see kind of front-end experience and so on, they're all based in this in this framework. And the team did a fantastic job. Uh, we're very, very pleased. Uh, obviously, it doesn't have the scale of F1 and th- those numbers, but for, for the needs of F2, F3 is more than enough. I'm sure the technology will improve. Uh, we did come across, obviously, you know, some glitches, and I wouldn't call them bugs. I'll call them known issues as well of Next.js, serverless, were deployed in a serverless scenario. Some of them will be addressing. Some of them I know that are being addressed in the new upcoming versions. And as a as a stack, it's something I would definitely recommend people should um, should check out. Yeah, um, where did you end up? Did you all end up creating this uh, Next.js implementation internally, or did you have like a pattern? If you didn't create it internally, did you all release anything like open source? Uh, no, not yet. We we haven't um, extended uh, much. I think there've been the old kind of customization and so on and so on. But I don't think we've generalized things in a way that we could you know share it back with PRs and, and so on. But uh, there is obviously ongoing development. And should this um, become, you know, should this, if we get this opportunity, then obviously we'll, we'll look to do that. Amazing. And uh, this Formula 2 and Formula 3 site, are these, you said they're built with serverless, are these kind of your your proof of concept websites? Are you ever thinking about looking back at Formula 1 and kind of evaluating if you might transition it to serverless at one point? Well, as I, as I mentioned kind of earlier in our chat, I think for that type of, of scale and also some unique characteristics, we're probably not there yet. But we are. I think the technology is improving. Other sports brands are looking into this as well. And I think one day, uh, definitely. And that day, I don't think it will be in the long future. I think it's getting closer and closer. Yeah, I guess we can we can leave it there. Um, do you have any final any final words, Voss? Only to thank you for. Um, for this chat and for having me in your show. Um, I do hope we'll get the chance to to talk again, um, hopefully under better circumstances as well.
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Hopefully under better circumstances. Yeah. Thanks again for, for being a guest. Um, and uh, to those listening, this has been the Talking Servals podcast uh, with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and you want to learn more, you can check out talkingserverless.io or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest.